Welcome to Season 3, Episode 3 of Founder Stories, sponsored by 1000Hires.com. In this episode, we go on an incredible journey with Omir Molat, co-founder and CEO of Vervo. Omir has a phenomenal story, and there's so many incredible things we can learn from him, like humility, grit, always challenging the status quo, and what it means to be a real leader. So please enjoy wherever you're listening from. And if you benefited from this, the best way to give back to Omar is applying something to your own life. But not only that, go ahead, share it with a friend. Let them get inspired too. And the most important thing, don't forget to subscribe. Hey everyone, I'm super excited today to present our next guest for Founder Stories. Today we have the honor to host our dear friend Omar. Omar has been the CEO of a phenomenal company called Vervo. Not only that, he has a phenomenal story where growing up from the young age of four, he's already been a world traveler, living in two different continents. Um, he's been served in the IDF, in the Israeli Defense Force, and he has an incredible, incredible story of how he overcame obstacles and hurdles in his personal life, and also who he became the man he is today. I'm very excited to have him here with us to tell us the story of Vervo, his own personal story, where he got to where he is now, and the lessons we can learn along the way and apply it to our own life. So, Omar, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So, Omar, let's take it all the way back. You know, a young boy that grew up in Australia, then all of a sudden moved back to Israel, ended up in Israel, moved back to Australia. You know, what's, this all, what's with all this moving back and forth and everything over there? So my parents had this this idea that uh, we should live overseas. Um, I was born in Israel, and um, and uh, I was four years old, and and they had this idea that we should live overseas for a period of time. And my father got an opportunity to work uh, to run a company in Australia, and they thought it would be good for us. And the plan was to move for for three years, um, and three turned into seven, seven and a half, um, and and so I ended up spending. Uh, most of my childhood from the age of four and a half to the age of 12 in Melbourne, so primary school or what you call elementary school in the US. And, and because the, uh, it's the Southern Hemisphere, the seasons are the opposite. So school mm-hmm. starts, um, you know, in, in March and uh, the opposite side of the year. So I, when I moved back at the age of 12 to Israel, I'd only done... Uh, half of grade six and then I went straight back into straight into grade seven I skipped half and that sort of always that haunts me because I sometimes when I when I think about what's wrong with me I think well that's because I missed 50% of grade six if only I'd done that um so so yeah so sort of moved around and you know really it's a culture shock um Mm-hmm. Anyone who spent time in the Middle East, anywhere in the Middle East and Israel in particular, knows that it's a bit of a jungle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bit of a sort of um, marketplace kind of flea market mentality. And then and it's kind of uh, Australia is kind of like more European, particularly Melbourne, um, a bit more British. Um, people might get upset at me saying this, but a bit more civilized. And, and um, I think I can say that as an Israeli. And so, you know, you sort of, it, it is a culture shock in both directions. Um, in Australia, people think that like I'm this kind of like crazy guy that talks mm-hmm. with his hands and animated. And then, um, and then you go to sort of Israel and you don't understand why people don't line up for anything. They just push everyone out of the way and, talk with their hands so uh, as a as a kid it kind of 
it knocks you about a little bit, but it's also, um, it completely takes you out of that sort of sheltered upbringing and you get to see fundamentally different perspectives on life, different cultures, languages, different ways of thinking about the world. And at the time, you don't appreciate it, um, but um, later in life, I think it's really helpful to have that perspective. And obviously I was fluent in English, um, reading and writing in two languages can be, uh, well, is really, really helpful as well. Sure. So when you moved to Israel at 12, did you know Hebrew? I, I did because my parents um, made me uh, keep up Hebrew and also I went to a Jewish school. Um, but, but, but I was, I was kind of like rusty uh, and, and the kids at school immediately kind of branded me as Australian, which to them was a place where there are kangaroos and no idea what, what that was about. And so took a little bit of time to sort of, um, get myself back into the, the sort of proper Israeli slang. I can only imagine, you know, as a 12 year old, you know, going into a new, a whole new country, a whole new place. And like you mentioned, you know, I love the example that Israel's one big flea market. It, it totally is. In a sense, everyone's trying to handle you, you know, the word handle, like, you know, get you for something over there, or either going to sell you something, Dead Sea products or something else in your, in your classroom or something, but they're always trying to get that. So, it must have the culture shock you had a 12 year old child it must have been like crazy you know thank god you've been able to overcome it through multiple years of therapy seems like which is a great thing um but you know but how is such an experience um living in two different places you know like you said before you have the israeli part which is all the chutzpah and moving away and moving with your hands and everything and then the Australian part which is more civil how has that shaped you from a young child you know looking back now and everything i think kids um generally struggle with things that are different and I think as adults we become more open and we seek difference and diversity um, whereas for kids are kind of all kids that most kids are xenophobic not maliciously but they kind of everything's mean reverting and if you're a little bit different then that's a reason to pick on you or um, and, 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 I, and I think there's so so on the downside there's a little bit of that I think on the upside um, you know, there are just so many benefits and we're seeing it now. I mean, the world is so much smaller today with the internet and social media, which was just starting to exist, not social media, but the internet when I was growing up. And, and so now, you know, I think the benefits are undoubted around um, the interconnectivity and, um, you know, you can work from in different countries. There's so much more mobility today. So then in a world with less mobility than today, uh, certainly in terms of technology, I think it was a huge benefit for me as a child to have another language, particularly English, to have a different perspective, another reference point that, well, it doesn't have to be like this. Right. It can be different. And that's not necessarily to say it's good or bad, but society can organise itself differently to dream about something different. Um, not just, and Israel is very influenced by the US, um, that's not always a good thing. Sometimes it's a good thing, depends what. And so to have another perspective that there's another part of the world can be um, really beneficial in terms of thinking about what you aspire to, what kind of career you want, what kind of values, even just how you conduct yourself and how you speak, and how you communicate. Yeah, for sure. So that's, that's totally, totally true and totally incredible. Um, Having that first of that open-mindedness, able to experience that open-mindedness, um, able to see from two different points of views, because you know essentially it's totally two different ways of thinking, totally two different ways. The Israeli way 
in the American way, for example, Australian way. And, you know, and the way how they conduct business and the way how they approach startups and the way everything, you know, Israel and the way it's phenomenal what's going on, the innovation, what they have, um, all the startups and everything that's going on over there and the amount of money. I just read a report this morning. The past quarter, $5 billion was invested into startups over there, which is absolutely phenomenal for such a tiny little country. But I want to move further in, in your storyline. Um, you know, you go to Israel, you obviously end up in the army. Um, typically, you end up in the, the tank platoon. You become a sergeant, if I'm not mistaken. And um, I read somewhere in a phenomenal story, and I'd love you to hear, hear the story because <clears throat> this really shows on it's something that we can really apply together back into our um, startup life. And for entrepreneurs, for team members, and this is really what culture represents. And I'd love to hear from your own mouth. There's a story that you were going through, I think, some type of drilling to be a captain. And there was somebody within the platoon that was able to take a, do the course and thrive in the course. He was able to finish before everyone else. But what he did was, there was other team members that were not able to do it, and he went back to help them. Are you able to tell us more about that story and how that are able to apply that directly to, to our own life with team members, within culture, within companies? Are we able to tie that back with into what you're building and everything? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I, th- I think if I'm not mistaken, the story you're referring to was in officer school yeah. and there was where, where they mix. Um, so when you become an officer, there's a general officer school that everyone in the entire military has to go through, no matter what unit you're from, no matter if it's combat, non-combat. Um, and then you go to a specific uh, course that typically takes four months that's um, specific to your uh, practice or unit. So f- for me, it was tanks. So you actually learn the, to become a practitioner to lead a tank platoon. But in the general office school, it's, it's leadership, essentially how to lead a team and how to be a, a commander in the military. And so what they do is they mix people from different units and that's the only time in the military that you'll have people from all different parts of the military together, special forces, tanks, infantry, like all sorts of things, intelligence um, with different abilities, um, different levels of fitness, um, di- different um, physical abilities, mental um, capacity, et cetera. And by mental capacity, I don't mean um, sort of in the clinical sense, I just mean sort of you know, mindset and and having pushed themselves to different places in their experience. Um, and one of the things you have to uh, pass, which is a, it's a pass fail hurdle and is an obstacle course. And it's just one of those things, I'm not sure that being able to do an obstacle course in a certain amount of time makes you a better leader, but right. it's, it's a kind of prove that you can get to a certain level of competence with your physical ability and fitness and mental toughness and you just need to be able to do these things like basic level of competence and it's actually very challenging and you're running you're doing obstacles you um sprinting through it you're wearing a full pack and um and uh you know most people don't pass the first attempt you have three attempts and if you can't do it in three you're out of the you're out out of the you, you failed officer school and there was this one guy who was a special forces guy, but you never would have guessed it. My size, I know you can't see on Zoom, but like I'm a small guy and skinny and not tall. And this guy was the same size, um, friendly, came from the countryside. I think uh, just, just a really just lovely, gentle person, but absolute killer. Um, and, you know, he is not what you expect when you think commando. It's just not. 
who you picture. And he kind of like took this other person under his wing. I, I don't know why. This really kind of nerdy person who didn't come from a combat background. It made him run laps on the weekends and he made him like do all these things. And yeah, like in the obstacle course, this other guy struggled and the elite special forces guy basically sprinted through it for him. It was nothing ran back and did the whole thing again with the other guy to just like, and you're not allowed to physically help, but just to basically encourage him. And, and, you know, it might sound like a cliche, but I got to tell you, like, you can't not be inspired when, when you see kind of stuff like it's pure encouragement it's selflessness um and it's just it's the things that get people through the tough kind of obstacles and literally an obstacle course and you know this is now 20 plus years later and i'll never forget it um and you asked how it applies i think there are many instances in our lives where we can potentially um not just help someone else, but forego, you know, the sort of glory or recognition um, to help someone else get across the line and not do it for credit. There's no reward at the end. Um, it's just to help another person um, get through and then nobody ever talks about it and, and that's it. And that's like, you know, those are the little things that make the world go around, I think. I'd like to think. No, no, for sure. The ultimate charitable giving is a giving in the sense of like, you know, non-recognizable charity, like, you know, not knowing who gave it. But I love that. And like, you know, that's chosen real leadership. And like, you know, as a, for someone that's a startup founder or an entrepreneur or even just someone that's leading a team, and that's the biggest thing. Like, you know, I love to hear like, you know, your principles of leadership. I'm sure you learned a ton from the army that you probably apply now, you know, into your day-to-day -day life and I, I don't know if you did it life but in, in your business life and leading a, a comp, leading a team um but i'd love to hear like you know how as a leader can you uplift your team members help them become the best potential within themselves yeah I mean, that's a big question I, I um and i don't know that i do it well and certainly not all the time but there so there are a few things there is something about human psychology that is common to any environment, right. a startup, corporate, military, whatever. Uh, people want to feel that they're part of something that's bigger than themselves. Okay. And that doesn't have to be something that is social impact saving the world. It's just bigger than themselves. Mm -hmm. They want to be part of something. That's why people do, um, you know, bike rides as a group. Uh, you know, it's not because they're bored. It's not, you know, they, if they're bored, they can watch TV. It's because they want to be part of something, right. uh, even something small. And certainly in a startup, that can be very compelling to be part of a mission. But if the mission is not just something that's written on a piece of paper. It's um, do you, um, in your day-to-day -day work, have a sense that you're doing, that you're making a difference? Uh, so one of the things that we do is every week, we remind everyone of the impact that they've had. We write a little update and we say, thanks to you, X and Y happened. A candidate now that otherwise would have been overlooked got an opportunity for um, with this job or this company that was previously using resumes is now doing this or we hired this person 
that otherwise wouldn't have been interested in joining us because they got excited about this thing that you made. And it's to bring back to people the reminder that, yeah, you're not just like shipping code or selling code deals or whatever. You actually, you are part of something. You're making a real impact um, on people's lives. And, and that, you know, at the end of the day, that is at an individual level. So everyone is motivated differently. Okay. So we're not saying to them, we're not choosing for them. We're just showing, we're just kind of amplifying the impact and then they can choose which thread to pull on, what resonates with them. And people get excited about different things. Some people are excited about building a website that people use and they're excited that people click on it because they made it, they made the button. And other people are excited that, that you know, there's a social impact. Um, and so it's my job to help people see, to help them see the power of what they're doing and what they could be doing. And hopefully that inspires them to then do the best work that, that they can do in the militaries. Uh, it's a different context, but at the end of the day in the military, there are a lot of similarities because people fundamentally don't want to be there because they're exhausted, they're homesick and they're getting pushed to their physical and mental limits. Um, and there's a myth that the military is run by through commands and orders that hardly ever, ever, ever happens. It's generally a very broad spectrum of kind of um, suggestions and encouragements to not get to the point where you're compelling people to do things. And so a good military commander can basically get people to see the goal and what we need to achieve and why it's in their interest to achieve it together with their teammates and almost have them do it in your absence. So I would always say that like my leadership is, should be judged when I'm not looking, when I'm not there. Are they actually, as soon as I turn, they're all gonna slack off or are they actually just gonna know what needs to be done? Am I instilling the right standards and behaviors and, and values? And that's what, what I try to do. And that's no different to, uh, to, to running a company. No, for sure. And that's essentially what it goes down to, boiling down to culture. Um, you know, building a culture where people, like you mentioned, feel part of something. Um, you know, feel bigger than them. You know, that's it. we're always, as in life, especially now in the 21st century, you know, we're always, we're seeking with technology, as much as the benefits of technology, it also disassociated, disassociated us with, you know, people, essentially, being able to connect with people on a personal level, being able to connect to specific types of things. It's all about, you know, posting on Instagram, you know, what's the, you know, it's all about the other side, you know, the grass is green on the other side type of process over there. But being able to create that culture, I love that aspect of what you're mentioning over there, uh, creating something bigger than, than yourself, you know, bigger than we. So going down to that aspect, you know, I'd love to, you know, give us the, you know, tell us about, you know, the beginning journey of, of Vervo. When you obviously just found the company and, you know, the company was founded off your, um, your own pain point that you experienced together with your co-founders. So give us like the brief intro, but I'd love to get into um, the difficult times in the beginning of Vervo. When yeah. you wake up in the morning and you're like, holy hell, this is, you know, are, we gonna be able to, are you gonna be able to keep the lights on today or you're not? You know, the difficult challenges that you went through and how you overcame that. Yeah, so the story, David, my co-founder, technology background, and he also um, ran a, a bakery. So a true entrepreneur, um, you know, not just in a tech sense, but actually like ran a proper business, which I don't think many people can say in tech. 
Um, and I, I grew, as we've discussed, grew up in Israel, served in the military. I, I, I worked in banking for most of my career after going to law school. And I worked at for the Australian Red Cross uh, two years coordinating international emergency aid. And so I've also had sort of a um, sort of mixed career across different, in different contexts, humanitarian, military, corporate. Um, and, and the commonality was that both of us sort of learned that we had mul multiple experiences where um, we saw that there's this dislocation between the sort of, you know, in David's case, people who went to Stanford um, on the one hand and on the other hand, self-taught technologists. And there's this dislocation between like um, how, uh, somewhat, how decisions made in hiring traditionally and what someone can actually contribute. And typically the signals that are interpreted um, often are more reflective of privilege than they are of capability. Mm -hmm. and, and in my case, I saw that many times I was leading a big team in banking and the top performers were not the ones from the schools you'd expect. And I also personally came to Australia. I had like officer in the military, worked at startups, went to the best school in the country. And then in, in Australia, I was like some guy without a degree from the Middle East whose name no one could pronounce. So all of a sudden, worth something, worthless. Mm -hmm. how, how does that happen? Um, and, and so this kind of this issue really burnt us at the same time, David and I got involved with a film and um, we sort of opened our eyes to the movie business. The movie industry is fascinating. They use auditions to do casting, which is like play the part and what a great idea. And we said, well, well why don't we get people to just play the part? for every job and why don't we use technology to make that possible at scale and that's really it's as simple as that that's what yeah what we do at vervo and i i guess kind of optimistically ambitiously and completely naively we said oh let's just start a company and do it you know this is great we didn't look into it too much and um and we we built it we put our own money behind it and never looked back and quit our jobs and yeah um, I, I think if we knew if we had complete you know, if there was no information asymmetry and we knew everything there is to know at the beginning, we never would have done it. We would have been like crazy. So you have to be a little bit crazy to start a company. And most people thought we were complete idiots. You know, like what, like, what are you even talking about? Um, but here we are. Um, and then, you know, there were many, many, many times along the way where we thought, oh my God, how, how are we going to get, first customer how are we going to get the next customer how are we going to retain the, everything like with every doubt you can have every question but we've never stopped believing in we've never the conviction in um the the sort of the vision that we have and in what the purpose and the mission and what we're trying to do has never waned it's just that that you get hit in the face metaphorically speaking uh, so many times that you have and and there's a saying in startups that you know it's a you know are you having a shit day wait till tomorrow are you having a great day wait till tomorrow because <laughs> the next day is going to be different so sometimes you just have to make it to the end of the day and then you start again and something else happens and to everyone we hire uh, every new hire i say listen it's a roller coaster this isn't like a it's not a party it's going to be hard. There'll be some good days. There'll be some bad days. If you want it to be like all smooth, work at a corporate, yeah. you know, don't, don't do, don't do this. No, for sure. hundred percent. The highs, it works like this. The highs are very high and the lows are just very low. You know, there's no middle ground in between over there. 
doesn't exist. It just doesn't exist. And now look, your naiveness is what kept you going, was what helped you get started. Um, you know, the naiveness that you had, like, yeah, why not? Let's just start a company within HR technology. You know, what do we care about? You know, what do we know anything about it? And let's go ahead and start. And that's the way how all credible stories and journeys start. And you know, you're five years already down the line, um, you know, a few million dollars raised from VCs, you have 4,000 customers. Um, look how far you've come. You know, I hope you've been able to, as much as the challenges are on a daily basis, I hope you've, you've been able to pat yourself on the back and see how far you've come so far until now. We don't do a lot of patting on the back. Um, that's something that I think our employees, you know, the team is probably, um, you know, I need to do better at. I think they're aware of that. We don't, we push hard and we don't do a lot of patting on the back. Um, we're not satisfied. And yeah, you've got to get the balance right. Sometimes it is important to celebrate and recognize that we've achieved stuff, but I think we've still got a long way to go to being where we want to be and having the impact that we want to have. And that's just how it is. For sure. So you touched upon an interesting point, which we'll get to back and get to in a second. But I love that you said, like you had your North Star, or sort of you have your mission. And you know, your mission, you never wane from your mission. Yes, there were challenges. Yes, there was, you know, you probably changed directions and pivoted the startup multiple times, but you never changed from the mission. The mission has always been the same. How important, I mean, I guess, so I'm assuming it's not how important, it's so important to obviously have that mission. Um, but, you know, coming for another company that's coming down, you know, that wants to create that mission, let's say they, whatever company they want to decide, what's the, is there a framework? Do you give any suggestions you have for them to create that mission and to make sure never to steer away from the mission, the mission because, you know, there'll be multiple shiny objects along the way too. Yeah. It starts from the problem you're trying to solve and it doesn't have to be... A, a, a sexy problem you know like there are startups in insurance and in logistics and all sorts of areas that are not you know they're not sort of considered like um necessarily exciting but they solve a really big problem and who are you solving that problem for and what's the impact what impact will that have on them so that's kind of one part of it that's really really important to get clarity on and understand why you're doing this and then the other part of it is why are you personally doing this um, because it's hard and you have to know. And so you, you need to care. What does that problem mean to you? And you need to care about that problem. When you put those things together, the problem and the impact that it has, not just on others, but on you, um, that is a really good starting point, I think, for thinking about, for defining a mission. Uh, the mission is not something that you write on your About Us page. It's about just being able to talk simply about the why, why are we in this game, whether it's to customers, to investors, to people you want to hire. Um, and, and, and that is something that you draw on. So when we look at, should we build these features? We say, well, does it help us achieve? And it's not in some cliche sense. It's like, well, is it actually helping us? If not, it's a distraction. If it's not helping us achieve the goal, achieve our mission, it's a distraction. Is this customer dragging us in the wrong direction? You know, do these investors want to be associated with us for the right reason? Or are they actually not on board with this? In which case, at some point, there'll be conflict. It's a good kind of guide um, to keep you on balance, keep you balanced and keep you on the right track. It's kind of like a compass. And 
we do come back to it quite a lot when we question things, if we're, if we're headed on, if, if we're going down the right path. Right. So I love that having it as a, your, your compass, you know, for every single type of question. So then take me back, you know, like in the beginning times of your startup, you have your mission, you and David decide you're going to go ahead and start this. You both start plowing your own money and then take me through some of the early challenges that you went through and how you push yourself forward to go work through them. So we had this, um, so a couple of things. One is we didn't know how to explain it. Uh, we didn't know how, part of that was because the category didn't exist. So there weren't any reference points. It wasn't like that we're making a toaster oven that's that heats warmer bread. And you can say, my toaster oven makes bread faster. It was like this thing of like, like the movie business auditions and with this new way of hiring and what are you even talking about? So that was kind of one thing that took us quite a while. And the other thing was we naively thought, oh, Atlassian, they had no salespeople. So we'll make software and people will just come to it and use it and buy it. And, and then we learned about this thing called user onboarding and all this kind of stuff. And maybe you need a sales team. It's pretty funny. And we kind of thought, you know, you don't really need, you know, we'll just make software that people can just figure out how to use. And of course the, the, the UX and UI was terrible in the beginning. Um, so we learned some stuff the hard way and we got advice and we made mistakes and we spoke to customers and we sort of fumbled way through. And, um, I think anyone who tells you that they didn't have a similar story, um, is probably one of two options. Either they're lying or they're a, a, a serial or repeat founder and they've made these mistakes before and they, they understand, um, you know, or they've, or they've had a minimum worked in tech and built something before. But if you haven't, it's kind of like, there's a lot of guessing. And there are only two variables. Um, minimizing the amount of times you guess wrong. Mm -hmm. and, that, and the second is responding really quickly when you know you've guessed wrong. Right. and adapting and that's the job of a good a good founder will will choose which guesses to make and then which ex, which really is kind of a, a simple way of saying which experiments to run mm -hmm. and then fail those experiments really quickly and adapt to the next thing nobody knows exactly what needs to be built and how to go to market and how to do all these things especially when you're creating something something new there's no playbook there's a guidebook um, but you will quickly stray off the path. And so, you know, someone said this to me really early on, um, someone who invested. He said, listen, I'm very clear that you guys have no idea what, what you're doing because you're building something completely new. I'm backing you to adapt quickly enough to the changes. And at the time, it seemed like some throwaway comment, but it's actually really true. And it's a really good way of thinking about the job of a founder. So I love that. I'm paying you enough. I'm investing in you in order to adapt quickly to things that are changing. So how have you, as a first-time CEO, uh, your first company, first-time CEO, how have you adapted along the way and your leadership style? Yeah, I mean, a lot. I mean, I mean first of all, uh, so, so there are kind of two things that drive my uh, behavior and how I allocate myself 
and how I sort of redefine my job. The first is the stage of the company. So when I look at um, what, what does the company need from me? Does the company need me to do marketing and get the word out there? Does the company need me to do a hands-on job or does the company need me to be um, a leader and someone who's driving strategy and evangelizing or does the company need me to raise capital? And these things change based on whatever they can change based on company stage, but also within a certain stage, there are different times where I'm needed to do different things, but certainly in the sort of early days when you're trying to get product market fit, uh, much less CEO and much more founder operator mm -hmm. and now kind of switching to more CEO. The second thing is um, the second thing that drives how I allocate myself and my behavior is uh, something less tangible, which is, well, how, how are people responding to me? Am I having an impact? Am I getting through? Right. Am I micromanaging? Do I need to back off? Do I need to let these people do? Or am I, have I got a blind spot? Am I letting people kind of, you know, are people um, in this area getting stale? Are they like off track? Do I need to now intervene? Like what are the areas that I need to shine a light on and call out and say, we're not activating customers well enough. We need to focus on that because I've got the, the, the broadest vision of the whole, the whole company yeah. more than anyone else that's in the weeds. So, so I need to kind of adjust myself and allocate myself uh, in terms of how I'm interacting with people. Am I a pain in the ass? Am I getting in their way? Um, am I absent? Uh, and it's not, it's not easy. You know, what do, what do they want from me? And, there's this, um, uh, you know, Bruce Lee, Bruce Lee saying, be like water. And um, it's difficult for me because I want to do everything and I want to control, I'm a, you know, probably an insufferable control freak. But really what the company needs from me is to be Bruce Lee, to be, to be like water, to be where I'm needed and then disappear when I'm not, you know, where I'm not needed rather than to have, a rigid or fixed sense of my job description, which is do all these things consistently. That's not what the company needs. Right. Sometimes they need me very heavily involved and sometimes they need me to like give them an update once a week and set the direction. Um, and that's, it's not, I, I don't get it right all the time. I mean, it's not easy, but I have to be a good judge of that. Right. And here I'm thinking your delegation skills might be amazing. De delegation is um, uh, tricky art because you have to give people the sense that they can own something and by owning it means that they can make a mistake. Right. Um, and they have, there's no safety net and they can like absolutely go for it, but that they'll be supported. Mm -hmm. So it's not outsourcing. Right. But supporter doesn't mean to do it for them. Supported means um, to to give people clarity on what's expected, and then to respond in an appropriate way when that's not necessarily the right when when the outcome's different to what was expected. Right. And a pro, I say appropriately because sometimes it because it depends. Yeah. Um, so so delegation is not easy. It requires trust on both sides, and. People also have different levels of direction that they need in order to do their best work. Some people struggle with abstraction and mm -hmm. chaos 
and other people are like, just tell me the goal and leave me alone. Um, and people respond to different leadership styles. That's part of, that's something that's good to figure out in the hiring conversation as well. Right. I mean, not only the hiring conversation, but as a leader to figure that out is a difficult process in order, because that affects so many different ways. Team members, culture, how people work together. Um, and how do you, and so to collaborate, to create that, I guess, that environment of collaboration between people and between teams is such an, you know, first of all, so important, but it's difficult too, it seems like. Yeah, it's challenging and sometimes it changes over time. I, um, um, you know, one person in particular who, who we hired, you know, has, and has progressed, started as an individual contributor and progressed into a leadership role and, you know, that people, people evolve. And so, um, starting out with someone who needs a lot of direction and then over time, you know, I'm lucky Faith throw me a bone and tell me what's going on in their department. <laughs> and so, you know, so, so that, but that's great. You know, yeah. that's great. So we've both adjusted how, how we work together and that's perfect. Yeah. Um, so it changes over time. So the question is, you know, how can you assess for something like that pre, before you hire them? So for example, like using a software Vervo, and, you know, how do you assess, how do, how do you use that to even assess, you know, someone like people are talking about culture fit, culture ad, or to see if someone, you know, vibe, or to see if somebody able to do the job. How is you able to determine that even their, 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 their own personal determination, or like you mentioned here, their, their work style, how could you determine that over there? You can test for everything. And without nuance or without knowing the specific um, circumstances, what I'd say generally is that the best way to do that is to put people in relevant scenarios, scenarios that are um, in context. Um, And I'll give you an example of why that's important. So people like to talk about abstraction, attention to detail. Okay, good. Um, The attention to detail of a librarian or of someone who is working in the um, federal election between Biden and Trump and counting votes is different. Um, I couldn't, I had to just throw in a relevant example for Americans because everyone knows how important that is in say the state of Georgia is different to the attention to detail I need in my job. Right. Okay. I need attention to detail. Okay. But at a different level, I need to pay attention to trends or to behaviors or to think, but not to like one vote, two votes. Okay. So Attention to detail in abstraction means nothing to me. Right. It, it, but, but attention to detail for a startup CEO, that means something. Or for a, a, a vote counting election official, that means something. So test for that. Okay. In context. Now, in context doesn't mean physically at the booth where they count the votes, but it, it's a relevant scenario. So if you want to know how someone's going to respond under pressure, I'd say, well, what pressure? Pressure to design something, design a logo quickly is different to pressure that your child is sick and you have to like run to support. That's like a totally different thing. That's not what, you don't want them to like under that. Of course, they're going to be stressed when their child is sick. That's not, so what does pressure mean? So what does responding under pressure mean? And so, you know, when we talk about like, okay, how is someone going to respond 
to a leadership style? Are they autonomous in how they work? That could be important, especially if someone's a, in a sort of junior leadership role. So, okay, well, what kind of autonomy do you expect them to have in that role? Do you expect them to like raise capital? No. Do you expect them to be able to run a transaction or do a performance review or manage a team? Yes. Okay, well, let's, let's test for that, right? And so I always come back to context. I come back to what do you need them to do? What does 10 out of 10 look like in that job at that company at the time? Graphic designer at PwC is different to graphic designer at a Series A startup, okay? The PwC designer is going to need to get stuff approved at companies. The startup will be like, why haven't you shipped it already? I don't even care that the thing's the wrong color. Fix it later. So different, different person probably or different working style, different operating rhythm. So when someone says, what's a good graphic designer? I don't know. I mean, I know there are some, there's overlap. There's certainly some common skills, but the rest depends on the, on the context. So anyone that's not testing in context, they're missing something. It's a proxy, right? They're not getting a good output. If you want a good output, if you want to make a great decision and you want someone who's going to fit or add that, you need to put them in the context, the relevant context to your role and your company. I, I love that. I love that. Now, is this something you're able to assess together with software? Because I've been seeing currently a lot of companies, you know, what they do is sort of like a contract to hire type of thing able to assess for these certain things where before COVID, obviously people were able to come to the office and try it out for like a month or two or something. Yeah. I mean, I think anything that bridges the information asymmetry is great. And there's always a trade-off between confidence and efficiency. So if you've worked with someone for a year, you know, almost everything there is to know about them and right. But can you afford to have every employee come and spend two weeks in your company? No. Can you afford to, right. So what we say, okay, We'll get you as close as possible. It's essentially a talent trial, but instead of coming and do, and by the way, we for our own company have twice brought people in for a week okay. to spend, but, but we didn't have an efficient, we had the time and we were only looking at one candidate, mm. but if you have 50 candidates or 5,000, you can't do that. Right. And you can't do that for every job and you can't do that for every candidate that kind of can't take a week off work, all these kind of things. 99.9% of the time, you know, we're working in a world of constraints. And so what, what we're doing is saying, okay, you want to get as close as possible to having that person work with you. So we're recreating that audition concept or trial concept using technology online in parallel at scale using data. Right. Awesome. Awesome. I mean, and I, I'm totally with you. You know, I'm a big believer in the sense of like, um, not just myself, but multiple people I've spoken to, you know, beyond everything beyond the resume. And the resume is only telling a certain story about the person. The person has so much more. It's not telling them capabilities, it's not telling them personality, it's not telling them so many other types of stuff. And each individual person is their own unique story, which you're able to communicate that to a potential company or a candidate is able to communicate that to the company that they're applying for. I go further and say, sometimes the resume tells a misleading story. So you might look at a resume and say, this person has a gap in their employment or this person 
um, worked at this company I've never heard of or didn't go to a very good school. But what you don't know is that, you know, they're a single mother or they came from a, their, their first path person in their family to go to college yeah. or they couldn't afford this or they couldn't you know and it's like well so all these things that mean nothing you actually don't know or they went back in the obstacle course to help the person get through and that's not the resume yeah. so the resumes lie and because they're the construct is is flawed and instead you want to understand how is this person going to contribute to your company in this role there's so much more to that so even saying let's go beyond the resume to me poses a problem. I say ignore the, I've never read the resume of any person we've hired in our company. I don't know what, I, I honestly, some of them, I don't even know where they worked. Like I know the immediate job they have previously to us, but I can't tell you what they studied at college. Half of them. I don't know, but I know a lot about them. Right. A lot about them. And I'll then take an interest and we talk about the history sometimes after they've joined, but it's just not a relevant there. I'm more interested in what have they overcome? How can they contribute? How do they think? What, what mindset, what are their skills? How do they apply themselves? How do they work with others? All these kind of important skills that are relevant. And the resume was, it's a, you know, a medieval document (laughs) that, that that you know when 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 we used to have one profession, blacksmith, you know it was kind of like okay I'm a blacksmith and this is what I've done and where I've worked. Okay, that makes sense as opposed to like carpenter or something. That's not how the world works today. Yet we're stuck. And personality assessments are the same. They're a clinical. You know they were designed 150 years ago to check if you're a psychopath, basically. Mm-hmm. And then the military used them. And now they've found their way into employment. And the reality is that people with fundamentally different personalities can be great at the same job. Mm-hmm. But people will look for any signal. You know, they will look for signals to give them confidence. Yeah. And they've been trained to focus on these things, resumes and interviews. And, you know, we're... we're it's gonna. It'll take as long as it takes, but we'll we'll shatter that eventually. We'll break through it. For sure, one hundred percent. You know, it's funny. Like you know, about, about the human development. Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, people think we, we think we we're better than we actually are sometimes, and then we think we're worse than we actually are. Usually, we fall in the middle ground somewhere. You know, we're in the middle level over there. And like you mentioned, we, we look outside ourselves. You know, for for that conviction, that positive conviction about 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 ourselves. Um, and the resume you said gives that to people. And people have to realize they're not their resume and they get rid of the resume and showcase their real self. That's amazing. You mentioned before, like, you know, in, in, being able to assess for skills, seeing other people's skills, um, you know, people, and I love the fact that you actually use, you know, your product within your own company. It's not just something you're selling. You're actually using it. You never looked at a resume in your company. You hired everyone from there. What would you just say are some like non-obvious habits that have made you better, a better person? Me personally? Yeah. Um, I think knowing when uh, switching off is difficult. Um, I'm not one of these productivity people who use all these note-taking apps and drink green juice at 4am and any of that. And partly because I don't believe in that and partly because I work across time zones. So, and I have kids and 
all sorts of challenges. But um, but I do. I've stopped um, sleeping with my phone next to my bed recently because I would wake up in the middle of the night and then get on my phone and start talking to the team in the US from 3 a.m. and then it quickly becomes 6 a.m. and then so now I put my phone somewhere else and I and that's sleep better I think that's a non-obvious thing um, and I also uh, think it's really good and this might sound like crazy talk most people take this for granted but for me switching off is really difficult in the day as well so I find certain things that I do sometimes in the middle of the day, like mowing the lawn or going to the gym where I'll actually just like be immersed in that activity and disconnect even for an hour. Um, I think if you're, if you're not a founder, you might not have that problem. Um, you can disconnect more easily, but for me, it's very challenging. So, and it usually it not, doesn't just help my mental health. It also helps sometimes to step away from a problem um, I do puzzles a lot and I discovered that um, I do puzzles with my son. Um, I get stuck and then sometimes I walk away and come back the next day and all of a sudden I'm on fire. And so there must be something in the brain that helps achieve clarity when you walk away from a problem. Um, and I think in work, sometimes when I'm like really struggling to figure out a problem, I just let it go for a bit and go for a walk and then and come back and then I get clarity sometimes it just it sort of hits me so so that they're, they're the kind of things that I do I don't really have great advice for people in terms of um you know habit forming I think it's it's very it's unique to each person um but but I what I can say is that it's really important to find out what you need to do to stay positive because when you're in a visible role particularly a role like mine, you're a barometer and people read off your body language. And if you seem anxious or angry or negative, it impacts everybody. And so it's really important not to be, you certainly can't be fake about it, but it's important to, to keep a healthy sort of mindset. I to totally with you on that. Totally. I, I love that thing. I'm actually going to try it out tonight because I definitely struggle with my, my phone aspect. I'm putting it in a different room. Um, so, you know, looking at, you know, Omer at, uh, you know, 18 years old or 21 years old, just finished the army. He has a whole entire world in front of him. He could go back to Australia. He could stay in Israel, become a barista in Starbucks or some other place. Or you have so many op options, you know, what message do we tell him? Well, what I've always told myself is never die wondering. I've had this fear of, of sort of growing old and having, I, I never... I was always happy to fail. I was, always, I was never risk averse. I was always happy to do stupid, unreasonable things. And I was happy to lose money and all those kind of things, move countries, make break things. But what I was never accepting of or tolerant of was to have regrets to look back and say, I wish, should have, could have. Never, never. I, 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 I had a, a huge anxiety around, around that. And if I felt that there was something that I really wanted to go after, it immediately induced anxiety of, you know, not doing it. So I immediately felt compelled that I have to do it. Otherwise I'm chicken shit basically. And I'll never be able to look myself in the mirror. So that, and I, that, that was, that has always driven me. And that drove me to, 
leave and relocate to um, Australia. It, it, it drove me to you know, quit my job. It, it, all these kind of decisions that were pivotal and there's a bunch of others throughout my life. It was this kind of, this, this two sides of the coin, this like compulsion uh, to, to, to do something and this fear of like not respecting myself if I don't do it. And it's sometimes it's backfired spectacularly, um, but 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 I've never regretted going after it. I've done it with a full heart. I love that. You can just you know, like Nike says, just do it. Just jump right into it. Well, just do it. And but it's not for everyone. Some people crave stability and security, and I respect that. I've no issue. I can only speak about what drives me. And I think, um, you know thinking about my younger self, I would absolutely apply the same principle, obviously with the, heart, with the benefit of information, more mm -hmm. knowledge. I, I might've like <laughs> done things in a different way um, or made choices quicker or whatever, but, but stumbled through it in a different way. But I think the principles are the same. Right. I love it. I absolutely love it. So Omer, I want to thank you so, so much. You know, I've learned a tremendous amount about this. Um, you know, not just from like what you just previously mentioned about just doing it, just jumping in, but you know, certain times it's okay to let naiveness, first of all, drive you. You know, a lot of times, we, you know, at least for myself or in general, it's like always about, okay, let me read this book and that book. Let me try to get all the answers before I begin. No, just go ahead and do it, which plays into naiveness, which plays into, you know, break things and figure it out and you'll fail and you know, learn quickly and then make those mistakes and you apply them again, you know, which breaks into, you know, learning about your team members and learning about your team and helping them become the best version and realizing that each person is their own individual story. And then it even goes further, you know, to everything in our personal life and our professional life. So many things. I've learned a tremendous amount of lessons and there's no doubt that so many people are going to benefit from this and learn so many credible things too. So I want to thank you so, so much for joining us today. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking time to listen to our story. Pleasure.